Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Sourcing Journal Radio. Our weekly check-in with apparel insiders and thought leaders, which spotlights a variety of topics currently driving change in the market. This podcast series is made possible by Cotton Incorporated, a not-for-profit company funded by U.S. cotton producers and importers whose mission is to increase the demand and profitability of cotton. Discover what cotton can do. I am Edward Hertzman, founder and president of Sourcing Journal. Today, we're taking a look at the so-called disruptors in our industry to find out which ones are on the right track, what it takes to change the course of an industry, and what's coming around the next corner. We're joined by Pano Anthos, founder and managing director of XRC Labs, an innovation accelerator for the next generation of disruptors in the retail and consumer goods sectors. Pano, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Eddie. Great to be here. So let's just kick it right off. Um, you know, you look at a lot of companies. I'm sure a lot of companies come and pitch themselves to you. What qualifies as a true innovation today in the fashion tech space? Uh, well, that's a phenomenal question. And if I had a simple answer, I'd be a very, very wealthy man right now. Um, because partly, uh, you know, we look at over a thousand applications a year, uh, you know, and what we look for is a future outcome as opposed to an immediate impact, right? So innovation today uh, starts out as a seed, uh, a kernel, if you will, uh, of, of capability that then you hope sprouts into a much, much larger, much bigger ultimate uh, plant or tree or whatever you want to call it, investment result. So for us, uh, the things that we are particularly interested in uh, fits certain trends that we're following. And they can be as simple as new distribution channels. Now, that sounds actually complex, but in some respects, uh, new channels are fairly easy to implement if, in fact, uh, the innovation doesn't rely on defying the laws of physics. You know, so, for example, you know, same-day delivery is a very complicated, uh, expensive solution um, or you know, the ability to air freight uh, fashion out of China or manufacturing locations all over the world to get to the customer faster. Um, you know, you can only go so fast and planes cost so much. So, so we are looking not so much to defy the laws of physics, but areas of innovation that kind of turn, um, change the game a little bit, uh, and create new channels for distribution. So I'll give you one example. Um, in fashion, distribution visibility is very expensive, but very important. And hence, that's how retail really kind of got its big birth is it became the platform by which people and consumers shopped and saw product and discovered product. And then we had the internet and that created that, its own discovery model. 
we think that, that there's a, a new channel uh, in the whole video and online streaming space that is emerging. And we're seeing great success with one of our startups called Shop Shops. And that's a new channel. And that's a, an ability for um, boutiques in the US or in Korea or out anywhere in the world to stream live into China and have Chinese customers buy right off the live stream. So no retail stores, no internet platform, no brand, you know, no special marketing costs, just stream and go and sell. Um, other forms of innovation for us in material science, there's a lot of attempts. There are many, many attempts right now around sustainability and reusability of product, uh, given the great waste that's out there today. There's a lot of innovation going on in analytics, trying to understand what the consumer is doing. You can call that fashion tech or retail tech for that matter. Uh, we see less innovation in the product itself. I mean, shoes are shoes. And yes, you see innovation in the shoe category, but it's not like there's a new instrument of clothing that no one's ever heard of before. So, you know, the, the basic pieces of garments are pretty much the same. And lastly, we see a lot of change right now in manufacturing. Uh, and we're big fans of moving on demand as much as possible over the next 10, 15 years and moving away from massive stock inventory, stock levels, uh, and giving customers what they want when they want it. So, I, I mean, you you covered a lot of ground right there. Um, if, if we had to go a little bit deeper, what what are the specific pain points that you think the industry needs resolved immediately right now? What are some of the what are some of the immediate fixes that 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 you think would would help turn around this this retail industry that's really suffering? So there's, there was a very famous show that was on when some of us were young uh, called Cheers. Do you remember? Do you know of that television show? Yeah, everyone, uh, every, you got to go where everyone knows your name. Bingo. So tell me, Eddie, one store that you've walked into uh, where they knew your name when you walked in. Well, that's a, that's a bad question, Pano, because I am a uh, I have a shopping problem, and they know me by name at Bloomingdale's, but for all the wrong reasons. But if, <laughs> if, I'm sure if we asked if if there was someone else on on the line right now, um, they'd probably say uh, there's very few stores. Honestly, um, when you walk in the door, they don't know who you are. But yes, uh, it, it's I think that today you're 100 percent right that. Um, uh, there, the in-store experience and the customer experience has been completely removed. You know, if you walk into, I don't want to name a retailer, but retailer X, it's hard to even find someone on the floor to help you get a size or, or figure out what a price is. So th there is definite uh, issues with, with the, with the in-store experience. Yeah. And I, I, and identity in our opinion is the start of the solution um, because there's nothing more awkward than an associate trying to approach a potential consumer when the consumer doesn't want to be approached. So it's a very different conversation when you say, Eddie, how are you doing? How was that last pair of slacks you bought? Versus, hi, can I help you? Um, when in fact, you, nine times out of 10, the consumer doesn't want to be helped. So I think the, the interaction, it, we're, we're avoiding the, the elephant in the room which is that if stores could uh, solicit from their customers and deliver a VIP service associated with that solicitation for identity. And by the way, this is being tested right now in Miami at a, at a number of um, a brand called Melissa Shoes. 
where they actually have facial recognition in the store. It's an opt-in model. The customer has to opt in for that capability. And their conversion rates are through the roof because the entire conversation is different. It's not so much, who are you? It's, hi, and how did that last pair of shoes work? You know, and how's your daughter doing and so forth and so on. So it's a very different, it's back to where the stores used to be in days of old. Do you think that, you know, what some some retailers, let's say like a Bonobos has done by, uh, you know, putting real estate in these prime areas, um, having no inventory in the store, but really, you know, trying to set up an appointment, you know, having someone in the store to really work with you almost as a stylist, um, you know, people are moving towards this trend a little bit. Uh, do you think that's that's a better approach to try to improve the in-store experience? Well, I think certainly an appointment model um, is ideal, but there's a lot of friction around appointment models. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to make an appointment before you walk in the door. That's not a natural consumer impulse. Absolutely. Um, so immediately you're asking consumers to change behavior. And if I can say one thing about where retailers have fallen down is they really aren't following consumer behavior very carefully. So for example, everyone thought, all the retailers thought, oh, we should build a mobile app for consumer because that's what they want. Well, in fact, consumers don't want apps. In fact, most people don't like to even use apps wherever possible. What they want are service levels. And the retailer thought, well, if we capture them in the app, they'll be ours and they'll be identified. And all that is a ton of friction before the consumer has ever, you know, kind of engaged. So we we're trying to remove the friction, and we think that unfortunately retailers add a lot of friction to the process. Um, you know, I want to pivot for a second and ask you a question that I probably should have, you know, started off the show with. What, can you just uh, explain a little bit what XRC Labs does and what it offers its participants? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, so we're uh, labeled an accelerator. An accelerator gives money to the startups and we take companies 10 at a time twice a year so 20 companies a year we take them through a 14-week boot camp program and we scrub them and we clean up their messaging we clean up their presentation decks for investors we clean up their presentation decks for sales we bring mentors around them to help them leverage the network and build business development and sourcing relationships faster uh, we obviously give them money so they can survive on it. And then we give them lots of investor introductions once they come out of the program, assuming they've hit uh, important traction milestones. So does XRC take take some equity in the, in the, in the companies for yeah. offering this service? Absolutely. We, we do, unlike a lot of others, when we give them money, we uh, are asking for equity in return. And it aligns our interests. Because of course. We have a multi-year engagement. Uh, I'm still working very actively. I was on a call last night at 9 o'clock at night with a a company from our first cohort two and a half years ago. So what would you say of all the services that you're you're, helping provide these, these startups, if you will, what is what is most needed? You know, what do you think when people walk in the door that that they're lacking, and you and you're able to provide to really help them go to the next level, solicit some of that, you know, Series A or you know, angel investment, if you will. What's the missing link that you're able to provide them? And I'm sure it's different for every company, but I'm sure you see a, a common theme across the board. We do. I would say the number one thing we do is, and they're related. Unfortunately, it's two things, but they're related is we refine their messaging and we make introductions. Because if you make an introduction with garbled messaging, the introduction falls flat. Retailers don't have time just to sit around listening to bad presentations. 
and ones that don't make any sense. And unfortunately, the entrepreneurs have been living with their solution for so long that they believe everyone understands what they're doing. Mm -hmm. 99% of the time, the messaging comes in garbled. And within three or four days, we've cleaned it up and then we create imagery around it. And we liken this kind of exercise to ballet. So a ballerina, and I'm sure you've gone to the ballet before, Eddie. Be careful now, panel. My mother's a ballerina, so just warning you. Well, she, and she can attest to this. I have the perfect arch, they say. How many hours of practice she put in to make what she does look absolutely simple, like that almost anyone can do it. You know how little girls try to emulate a ballerina and dance around? <laughs> they see it and they go, I can do this. Well, the, the reason they can actually make any sort of claim to that, even though they can't, is the ballerina practices really, 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 really hard for many, many, many hours to make it look really, really simple. Mm-hmm. So what we say is you got to put a lot of time to make your message super simple that anyone can understand it, even your grandmother. And the ballet is a great example where everyone can appreciate the beauty of ballet, even if they don't understand how much time and effort is put in. Mm-hmm. So – you know, I have a, a bunch of friends that are from the VC community, and there's obviously a lot of investment going into retail tech. And, and we'll go back to that uh, retail tech specifically. But, you know, you, you made an interesting point before that there really isn't anything new, right? There, there's, you know, when people come in and say, Eddie, can you invest in my gene company? I'm like, eh, unless there's three legs on that gene, I've seen it all before, right? So, you know, there's a lot of direct-to-consumer businesses, these digitally native companies that that are that are trying to raise money. They're popping up by the day. I feel like every time I go on Facebook, I see a new one, you know, whether it's sustainability is their claim or it's we're cutting out the middleman or, you know, we're made in America or we're the perfect fitting shirt or shirt or t-shirt or, you know, whatever their, their, their gimmick or, or brand proposition is. Um, what I'm hearing from a lot of the investment community is these really don't represent great investment opportunities because it's very expensive to acquire customers. They may not necessarily understand the supply chain all that well. They may be great marketers. They may have a great story. Um, do you find a lot of people approaching you that are in this space? And, and what, what's your take on this whole direct-to-consumer business model? Well, I'm a big um... – so I disagree that it's not a big, I think it's a big investment opportunity, but I think you have to pick and choose very carefully. Um, you're absolutely right. Another pair of jeans, another gene manufacturer, honestly, do we really need one? Uh, so, so there is certainly a redundancy in this space. You know, women's dress shoes. I, I have probably seen 50 companies trying to do women's dress shoes. More comfortable than the, than the previous one, you know, so that the pumps are actually easy to wear. Um, the... The, the things that we are very bullish on, and we're very bullish in this space, um, is when you're really capturing white space from a consumer's interest standpoint. So, for example, um, and I'll use an example that doesn't actually have anything to do with us. So farm to table, the whole food organic movement, right, was and is still constantly evolving because people care really what they put into their body. We just backed a company called Curie that's actually a skincare company that is down to less than 10 ingredients and it's all plant-based. So when you hear that, your first reaction is, wow, that's different. And, and it, as you, you know, look around, it actually is different. And I'm not saying that they're gonna win, 
but there is space for new categories of product that tweak or change or twist, if you will, in a positive way, um, act something to make it different, differentiated. Uh, another example is Billy, the uh, female razor uh, platform is considered to be the, the female Dollar Shave Club. Yep. And uh, we backed them. And they, they had nothing. They had an idea and three founders. Um, and what we really loved about this was first, everyone said to us, oh, the female shaving category, it's a mess. And, and it's all owned by Schick and it's all like, and no one shaves or they shave and they don't care what the razor looks like and they don't need new razors. Well, so we went over, I had the founder go over to CVS and I said, do me a favor and measure the product space taken by female, the female shaving category compared to the male shaving category. Turns out they're the same size. And then you ask the question, so why is Billy doing so well? Given the market size is decent, Schick should just own all this, and Gillette or whomever. And the difference is Billy is now speaking a language that it really appeals to this next generation. You know, so when you hear that story and you, their numbers are off the charts, I can't share them with you, but trust me, they're way, way, it's blown up dramatically in a positive way. Because yes, it's really on one level, it's not about the supply chain, but it's the nuances to the product. It's little things they've done that have made it really far more interesting and, and relatively easy to switch. Now, once you switch, you, you're raising the right question, which is what's brand loyalty now in this new era, right? So, you know, if it's not product innovation per se, and it's market innovation, how long can you keep that market? And I would argue you can keep it a very long time if you continue to innovate. So Auburn's has, has done a very good job with their first category of, you know, shoes. But if they don't continue to innovate, they will be out of business. No different than any of the sneaker companies, right? You, you can only live on for a brand for so long. So it doesn't mean that you, you stop innovating and stay loyal to your brand. It just means that what, you have an edge. A D2C has a chance of gaining traction if they can tell a story that truly is markedly different. Um, but if you're another eyeglass company and we've seen five come out and they're, the variations were, you know, we use sustainable glass or we use sustainable plastic or we, you know, like that's going to be a tough sell because frankly, you know, eyeglasses, you know, Warby kind of has really dominated that space. Yeah. Those are me. Those are me too copycat businesses, just trying to grab a little bit of market share. And like you said, there's really nothing very unique there. Right. But when you when you look at all, all birds, it's funny because we were actually having a conversation in the office about them yesterday because, you know, everyone loves their shoes. Would you say that, but, but here's the question we were discussing. Are they, in your opinion, a footwear company or are they a material innovation company? And if they continue to innovate with fabrics, with different fibers and, and roll that out to different product categories, to your point, okay, now they'll be able to extend their brand and really own something and, and, and innovate across multiple product categories. If they're trying to rely on selling the same wool shoe over and over again, well, then they're prone to the me too, uh, you know, uh, issue. And then how many pairs of that same shoe does someone want? Right. And I think you've seen their answer already. So I agree with you. Um, they are a materials company. So if you look at their second shoe, it's a, you know, kind of a, uh, out of a tree. I haven't even looked at it carefully, but it's a comp it's a their materials coming from trees or something. Yeah, they partnered with uh, with lensing, I believe, on that on that shoot. And I looked at that and I said, okay, I get what they do. They're not a shoe company; they're a materials company. 
Um, and that's a great, not a pivot, but it's a great extension of their brand because then they can move into other categories if that's what they want, want to do. They can stay loyal to the shoe category, but candidly, they're not shoe people, right? I mean, you can tell by the shoe they're producing. That's not their, their innovation is the shoe style. In fact, you know, the fashionistas look at it and say, that's a dumb looking, ugly looking shoe. Um, but that's, that's irrelevant. And that's what I try to tell the fashionistas. You're missing the point. People love the comfort of the shoe. And by the way, it's visually distinctive. And so the second thing we look for after we look at whatever the innovation is in the, either the product or the material or the market, we look for the innovation in visuals. Because if you don't have visual cues to a fashion product, it's almost impossible to distinguish yourself, right? So no offense to the underwear market and the people who are selling stuff that's inside, you know, underneath clothing. It's really hard. You know, Mack Weldon's, they're, they're doing fine, but they're not blowing up like all birds blew up, right? Because you just don't see the product on people like you do on a parachute. Well, what, what advice would you give, you know, um, you know, I've even been tempted as, as you know, Pano, like, um, I come from the supply chain world, you know, pr- prior to sourcing, starting sourcing journal, um, I was a manufacturer and I represented a lot of retailers and factories and people are always like, Eddie, why don't you have a brand? You can make things so inexpensively and you could, you know, you, you know how to make great product. And I said, well, I don't want to get into that business because it's already saturated. And it's just something that, you know, I wonder, like, what's the competitive advantage? And yet I see them popping up every single day. And I, I keep scratching my head and wondering is, is, are these guys doing well? And I think you can't put them all in one bucket. To your point, you know, Allbirds is very different than an underwear company. Then, you know, you look at uh, Bombas that's, that's selling, a, you know, a five, seven, eight. I don't even know how many pairs of millions of socks already, not to mention every pair of sock they 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 sell they give away a pair of socks so they had that 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 social uh good you know aspect of their business but they've completely uh you know innovated in, in a marketplace where you would say it's a sock and it's amazing how well they've done but what advice would you give to these these people that have started these digitally native brands or people that are looking to start at it started because if, if you're saying it's 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 what, what differentiates them is, is having a, a core competency or finding this white space. What is the white space and starting a denim company that's direct to consumer? Well, that's not a, I wouldn't start there. <laughs> the denim company would not be the one I would start with. But let me suggest that white space is usually attacking an incumbent that has gotten stale and stagnant in the product category. Okay. And you can look at the CPG, CPG space. Um, there are many, there's still some areas of fashion that haven't changed dramatically. Uh, and maybe they can't, right? So the other side of the coin is, you know, who thought, who really would have thought that you could really innovate in the sock industry? Well, they created a brand around it and they created some storytelling. Right. So you can do it. So, but it was visual because you can see someone wearing Bombas or Stance right away. Right. It's like, they, they've identified the brand and they avoided, you know, poor Burlington Toe. I mean, or, you know, the um, Golden Toe, right? Because they've been around for a gazillion years, but no one knows that they're actually what, what the sock is when you wear it until you take your shoe off. And that's kind of gross. So, so correct me if I'm wrong. You have, you have two seasons a year at your accelerator. It's 10, 10 companies each season, correct? So 20 total. Yep. Of those 20 total, you know, realistically, what is your expectations? You know, how many of them do you expect that are going to move on to be, you know, um, profitable, scalable companies? How many of them do you think are just going to completely, you know, go bust, you know, for lack of a better term? And then how many of them do you think are just going to kind of 
stay around for three to five years, you know, kind of struggling to, you know, break even and then kind of, you know, dissipate at some point? Well, I, I, you know, of course, I believe just like a parent that all my kids are beautiful and amazing, right? So, um, but the reality is going to be, it's going to shape like a bell curve. You know, we are not magicians. And even though we like to believe we can pick them really well, uh, there are other forces at work that keep us always second guessing ourselves in some respects. The things that we have seen blow up and do really well, some people thought never would have happened. So I believe in the law of large numbers that you've got to create enough, as we have, diversity uh, in our portfolios that we give everyone a chance, equal chance. And the fittest survive. You know, the best founders win, usually. They figure out how to pivot and make it work. So that live streaming company didn't start in live streaming. They started with a mobile app for Chinese consumers in the U.S. to find U.S. boutiques. Now, how hard and complicated can that get? Really bad, right? Think about it. But what they, found, what they, what they uncovered, which I didn't understand, was that there's already today a market called the Buy For Me market. It is $9 billion in size, and, it is a, it's, um, and it's done manually today. You know, the Chinese in China call the, their friends in the U.S., and they ship goods back overseas. And so when I knew that that market was that big, I just said, we're going to go figure it out. This might not be the right mobile app solution. We'll find a different way of doing it, but we're going to keep attacking it until we solve it. So my experience is that the founder who's willing to pivot and learn from their mistakes or learn from the issues of time and change and whatever else will win. And the founders that don't will lose. So we tend to go after the jockey first. We, we bet you know, on the jockey, not so much the horse. We look at the horse second and say, it's gotta be a big horse. You know, ideally that it can race, run fast to be a big market. But our bell curve is our bell curve. We do not expect 100% winners. So you're really you're you're really looking at at, at the founder or the founders as as a driving force behind you know, any. There's a lot of good ideas, but it's the execution of the idea that's 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 everything. So you're you're putting a lot of stake in in the in the founders, and 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 that's a big big pr- part of the criteria of of who's entering your program. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look at the Allbirds example, right? Honestly, is there really any innovation in that shoe except it's a wool shoe? I mean, you know, they're not pr- producing a different kind of last. They're doing it in manufacturing locations. They didn't come up with new machinery to produce the, you know, like there's a lot of things about it that's not innovative, but the combination with the storytelling mm-hmm. comes from the founders and the appeal makes it really something special. And so that's why I come back to founders are 60, 70, 80% in, in some cases of the solution and the innovation, the technical difference, the material difference uh, in today's world. Now, in the future, we'll see smart apparel making a huge difference in both manufacturing and consumer experience. And that's going to be a very technical solution. You know, it's not the kind of thing that, you know, it's going to be like Gore-Tex is, is technical. Right. So we think that there's a lot of innovation going to happen. And already we've backed it, a couple companies in this kind of smart apparel space that is going to make apparel much more responsive to human conditions, external conditions, and so forth. That's technical, but the actual style and the layout of the garment, the production in most cases, uh, if it's made in factories, is not a question of innovation. So, so you mentioned earlier in the show, um, on-demand manu- manufacturing, this move to an inventory-less you know, um, business model, which is, you know, inventory is, is, is the kiss of death because it eats up all your cash 
And then if you're sitting and you bet on the wrong style, obviously this is this is where brands and retailers have just gone uh, terribly wrong, and and one bad season could could put you out of business. Um, so on-demand manufacturing is something everyone loves to talk about. It's it's everyone's disagrees on how scalable it is, or you know when we're going to see this adopted, you know, on a large scale, and how many product categories can benefit from this. But specifically, you know, in addition to that, you know, what aspects of the supply chain are in most need of disruption in order to bring brands and retailers more in line with what, you know, consumers want today? So um, I have an interesting story to tell you, um, and I'm not going to make this too personal, but it's really relevant and current. So my wife used to run product for Sesame Street back in the day, um, and she stepped away from the industry for some time, and she just took on a consulting project. I can't name the company, in the children's space, a startup, and worked there kind of building a private label brand for them. And this is, she had been out of the industry for close to 15 years. And she came back after like the first couple of days of, you know, going back into this. And I said, so how are you doing? She said, nothing's changed. Like 15 years, Eddie, we're not talking about two. We're talking about 15. They're still producing children's clothing, designing them, producing them pretty much the same way they've been doing it for, for 30 years, 50 years. Yeah, they've got some technology and they don't use fax, they use email and they use, you know, with China, you've got Skype instead of like, you know, phone calls. But the reality is they're going back that, you know, the basic specs are, are done the same, the tech pack, everything is pretty much done the way it used to be. Now that's not the case in every part of the industry, right? So uh, athleisure wear, footwear, lots of innovation going on there between Nike and Adidas. There's tons of stuff going on. But in the basic blocking and tackling, it hasn't changed at all. So, so the first thing we think has to happen, I mean, you have two ways of going about this. You can try to automate what already is and make it all faster, better, cheaper, in term, not in terms of production, but in terms of turnaround time, right? So reduce the nine, you know, nine-month horizon to nine weeks, and everyone's trying to do that. And there's a lot of success in that. And you can get a lot of results out of it, as you see with Zara, right? I mean, they've had a huge home run, although they're starting to kind of lag a bit as well, in, in reducing that supply chain dramatically in, time, in terms of cycle times. But the other thing that we think, that's a temporary salve in our opinion. That is not going to solve uh, the, the ills of this industry. Um, because you still have a scale question, which is, okay, so you're going to produce that much, that quickly, that fast, that, you know. And it's, it, it's, a, it's a great question. The, the other side of the coin, so I think there's lots of efficiencies we'll get out of that side of the equation. If everyone moved to a nine-week cycle time instead of nine-month, you'd see a dramatic change in the industry, right? Yeah, but why, the, why is everyone struggling this? I mean, we, we, we've done so many conferences. We've done so many webinars. We, we've written so much research on this. You know, we could write an article a day, frankly, about the need to uh, improve speed to market, what it does to your inventory, how it completely changes your, your business. I mean, you, you mentioned Zara, you know, that it's been beaten to death in, 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 in the press about really it's, it's, it's how it's, it's a, it's a cultural, um, it, it's, it's their culture that, that allows them to be so, exactly. but, but, but no matter how many times we read or talk about this, um, companies are unable to get out of their own way and, and speed up that calendar. Why is that? I just I, I can't comprehend how much uh, pain points there, there, there must be internally for, for these companies to continually, you know, use six months as, as, a, as a schedule to get to get stuff done. Well, it's, it's a chicken and egg problem because the retailer isn't demanding it, even though they'd like to see it because their own cycles are, are built that way. They think in terms of calendars, right? 
I mean, who's who's really blown up the calendar and said, ah, doesn't matter. We're going to ship anytime. We're going to ship winter coats in summer. Well, you're probably not going to do that, right? So you do have some conditions that create calendars. You have holidays. You have you know things that create some cycles. But the so so you don't have this con- constant replenishment model that Zara and others have really built. But you're right. It's a cultural issue, and I would say that what people have done instead of compressing cycle times is they've beaten the living daylights out of the price. Think about it, right? I mean, the the Van Heusen shirt or the Ralph Lauren shirt or whatever doesn't cost $80 to produce today like it used to. No. So what they've done is they've cheated, so to speak, that, you know, they cheated death by pushing and finding cheaper sources to produce. But that's going to go away now. There is no there, where else can you go? You're there, is no, there is nowhere left to go, and chasing the low, the, the cheapest FOB is no longer a sustainable or or even plausible business model. They have to look at total margin, not margin derived from from first cost. And again, that's another thing that we we continue to try to educate people on is how does a seventy or eighty percent you know initial mark of industry end up at single digits or negative? Where is that margin going? pay a little more, get the goods in quicker, replenish or get out of something. But again, it, it, no matter how much we educate them, the market, they seem to not want to get there. They can't get out of their own way. So they will get disrupted. So the good news is that over time, that market will get disrupted. It's, it's, gonna, it's happening slowly. Yep. And maybe I'd like to see it happening more quickly. But you know, let's be honest here. So your basic replenishment goods are probably not going to go through any sort of massive change, right? I mean, black turtlenecks are black turtlenecks, and you know you're not going to sit there and 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 try to go on demand or reduce the cycle time dramatically because it doesn't matter, right? You're just going to always fill the stock the shelves with black turtlenecks. Where you're going to see more differentiation, and I and we're seeing it already in the athleisure space, is a move toward personalization. Mm-hmm. And with that, and also smaller collections. So one of our companies is called Steel, and you probably know them. And uh, you've, I think you've met with Marlene already. Yep, very smart woman. Right. And she's about to sign a very large deal, and I can't go into details, where the whole influencer community creates their own collections through her platform. Yep. That's a very different model. That's a very different retail model and a merchandising and a marketing model than the traditional model that's there before. So what you sometimes have to do is you have to say, you know what? Forget wholesale. We're not going through that nonsense anymore. Mm-hmm. We're selling direct, but we're selling through an influencer market. I mean, look at Kylie Jenner. My gosh, it's a $900, billion, $900 million cosmetics business. Yeah, with and, what, 15 people on staff? It's unbelievable. Right. And, and this is where you're going to see the cosmetics industry is actually leading in this because the margins are there and the opportunity to strike and innovate is there. And the products mix, the basic chemicals and formulas are all the same, right? I mean, let's be honest. So storytelling makes a difference in influencers. So we're going to start to see this move this way in apparel, where your lines of clothing, you know, you might go back to the old days of yore where the, you know, Christy Brinkley or whoever it was, Kathy Ireland, right, came up with a line of clothing. But instead of selling it at a Kmart, she sells it on her own. Yep. She does it in small lots and small quantities and builds the business without losing her shirt. So we think there's a big move toward the re-merchandising is going to change. And with that, the supply chain will change because it follows this kind of micro-influencer collection market. Mm-hmm. Discovery, the quantities are smaller. They, they, they go out of stock faster because we actually believe the new inventory is scarcity. So if you look at Kith and Supreme, 
the uh, the collections in the shoe industry, the sneaker industry. Entirely. She did. She drops it. It's a limited run. Boom. It's done. And then that's it. You people start waiting for the next drop. Exactly. And that will cause people to start accelerating supply chains because what they realize is they don't have nine months. The new line is out in six weeks and it's gone. And people are customers will want that because they want freshness and they want uniqueness. You know, they want scarcity. They want to be the only one to get it. So we think there's a, the, the trends are away from that. And that actually then pushes us more toward this personalized on demand custom, almost custom, not quite custom, but, you know, kind of one of a kind, uh, you know, kind of model. We think it's going to happen first in the odd sizes that normally end up in the uh, discounters, right? So, right. Why do MOQs on extra, extra smalls when you sell five of them, right? Why even bother? Like you, it's not a scale problem because you sell so few of them, it, you know, like, but you need to handle the collection so you don't piss off your customer. Fine. You know, it's not available. It's not on the rack. You click this button. It's on demand. It gets produced in two or three days. One, two, two, one prepack is, is not, is no longer the, the, the future. Correct. So you're going to end up with the, the, again, the same bell curve, your edges in, in sizing is going to be done on demand and your replenishment in your big bulk will continue to be placed either in the traditional manufacturing model or go through variations. But you, we are not going to move the entire, you know, black turtleneck market to on-demand um, uh, 3D knitting machines. There's no need to, right? You, you probably just made someone out there very upset that uh, probably has a, the, a new uh, direct-to-consumer black turtleneck company. Uh, there are a bunch of them. I see them on Facebook all the time, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm with you a thousand percent, but we do see and we know that the, the, um, the discount chains are very concerned that their core business gets gobbled up or goes away because these odd sizes are not produced at scale anymore. They don't need to be. Well, the inventory, the, the, if, as people start to cut back on inventory, it's going to be very interesting to see how it impacts the off-price market. The off-price market has said and it continues to say that they're seeing no issue in, in obtaining inventory. But um, let's see as on-demand and automation continues to increase what that looks like in a year, two years, three years down the road. Right now, they seem to be on fire. But um, uh, I agree with you that I think this is something to watch. Um, I, I hate to cut this short because I think you and I could probably talk about this uh, uh, forever, but I, I hope you'll join us again, especially at the start of your next next semester, if you will, when you're, you're the, the, you're the next group of um, participants enter your, your program. You know, we'd love to see you know, who you're working with, what are some of the new big ideas that you're behind, what changes you're seeing in the market. I think this is an ongoing conversation. You actually... Uh, absolutely have insight into the future. You're investing in the future. You are causing the disruption that you speak of by uh, enabling a lot of these startups to actually come to fruition. So uh, continue doing that great work. Um, I want to thank you again for for spending time with us today. Uh, and just the last question, if, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, um, what would be the best way for them to to find you? Yeah, and my name is very easy. It's Pano, P-A-N-O, at xrclabs.com. Easiest way I respond very quickly to email. Great. Eddie, by the way, thank you very much. I love this program. I think what you're on to is critical and needed. Um, we want to be supportive any way we can, and we hope to keep supplying startups that keep uh, supporting you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To hear more insightful conversations like this, 
be sure to subscribe to Sourcing Journal Radio on Apple iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. Also get your ticket now to the Sourcing Journal Summit in New York on October 11th. We'll be bringing together a slate of provocative thought leaders to discuss the challenges that face the industry as we move forward towards Sourcing 5.0. Hear from Rick Darling, Executive Director of Lee and Fung's LF Americas, Steve Lamar, Executive Vice President of the American Apparel and Footwear Association, Karen Moon, CEO and co-founder of Trendalytics, Isaac Korn, Director of Innovation and Automation for Perry Ellis, and many more as we discuss the impact of the trade war, the ongoing retail recovery, and how technology is transforming retail. Visit our site, sourcingjournal.com, for more details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.